And turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We have finished our series on the book of, of Hebrews, and today we're going to start a small series in the book of Isaiah. So I'd ask you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. And when you get to Isaiah 40, would you rise out of reverence for God's word and let us read it together? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. And his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And marked off the heavens with a span. Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. And weighed the mountains in scales. And the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord. Or what man shows him his counsel. Whom did he consult, and who made him understand, and taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told from you to you the, from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? 
says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. This is the beautiful word of our God. You may be seated. As I mentioned, we're just going to take a few Sundays to go through this section in the book of Isaiah. It's a very important section. Of course, we're not going through the entire book of Isaiah, but rather we're going to focus on the chapters from chapter 40 to 53. And one of the important things about this section is the identity of this one who is called the servant. Twenty times in this section that we're going to be studying together over the next few weeks, from chapter 40 to 53, 20 times the servant is mentioned. And we ask, well, who is this servant that's being talked about here? Well, in most of the cases, the servant is identified as Israel or Jacob. But also in a, in a handful of very important spots that we're going to study carefully as we go through this, the servant refers to a righteous individual that God promises to send. God has already promised this in Isaiah chapter 9 when he said, To us a, a child is given and a son is born. So this is a continuation of that promise that, that God is going to send a righteous servant who will represent Israel, who will represent the people of God, but where the people of God have failed, this righteous servant will succeed. And of course, as Christians, we look to that and we say, wow, the prophet Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus. And so that's why this is an important section of Scripture, starting in chapter 40 all the way to 53. But the book of Isaiah is also a unique book because right where we're starting, right here in chapter 40, or rather between chapter 39 and 40, there is a major shift in the tone of the book. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are, are mainly filled with the judgment and the wrath of God over the sin of Israel. And over and over again, God is proclaiming how, how angry he is over their sin, over their idolatry, and finally... He has had enough, and he will judge Israel for their sins. That's the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. But the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, there are still elements of judgment and wrath, but the tone is much different now. And we saw that even in the first verse 
of our passage today where it said, comfort now, comfort my people. And so that is the change that we see here. Now God is going to talk about the hope of salvation that he has promised. And the special thing about this is this division in the book of Isaiah actually corresponds to the entire Bible. Because the first 39 chapters can correspond to the Old Testament, the 39 books there. And then the 27 chapters that are remaining in Isaiah can correspond to the New Testament. So this is an interesting way in God's providence that he has designed even the book of Isaiah to show us this major transition from the wrath and judgment of God over sin now to the comfort and peace that comes through the promised salvation that he has given. We could even call these two sections, they're so distinct, just like we talk about 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. We can refer to it as 1 Isaiah, and now in chapter 40 starts 2 Isaiah. And so that's why we're starting here in chapter 40 to begin to, to study and to dig into this, this promise of hope and salvation that God is now promising to Israel. Because as we said, the prophecies here are ultimately fulfilled in the true righteous servant who came, Jesus Christ. And that's why it's important for us not only to know these chapters, but to study them. And so if we look at the context of Isaiah chapter 40, between these two sections of the book of Isaiah, there is, there is a few chapters of prose or a narrative. It talks about King Hezekiah tells of the deliverance of King Hezekiah, where King Hezekiah was about to die uh, because of sickness, and yet God in his mercy extends his life. But in chapter 39, still talking about Hezekiah, there is an ominous and foreboding note here. If this was a symphony, if this was a piece of music, chapter 39 would come in a haunting minor key. Why is that? Because in chapter 39 of the book of Isaiah, it tells the story of how King Hezekiah, who was a good and righteous king, he followed the Lord his God all the days of his life, but in chapter 39 it tells us that he did something very unwise. What did he do? Well, emissaries from Babylon came to visit Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah opened up all the doors. He said to the Babylonian ambassadors, come on in and take a good look at all the treasures we have here in Jerusalem. Take a good look at the treasures we have in the temple. Look at our wonderful palaces. Look at this. Look at that. Isn't it great? And that was a very unwise thing to do because those Babylonian emissaries, they went home and they told the king, about all the wonderful treasures in Jerusalem. And so chapter 39 ends on this foreboding note that this is what King Hezekiah has done. He's shown everything in the treasury to these Babylonian ambassadors. And it sort of leaves it, leaves it there like a cliffhanger ending because from that point to chapter, or sorry, chapter 40, there's about 140 years. There's a gap there. And what has happened in the meantime? What has happened between 
chapter 39 and chapter 40. Well, in that space of time, the Babylonians have come. They have plundered Jerusalem. They've destroyed Jerusalem. They've destroyed the temple. They've taken all the people of Judah into exile. Why have they done this? Because of God's judgment? Because of all the sins of Judah and Jerusalem in turning away from God to false gods and false idols? So that's what's happened in the gap or the silence between chapter 39 and chapter 40. And so as we read in chapter 40, things pick up during the exile of Judah in the land of Babylon. So the Judahites there have been suffering for their sin. The capital city is gone. The temple is gone. All seems lost. Many of their family members and friends and neighbors are dead. They're living in a foreign land with foreign people speaking a foreign language. These are some people who are in need of comfort. Sometimes we too find ourselves in need of comfort. We can feel overwhelmed or weary or downtrodden or burned by the things of this life. We need to be comforted. Sometimes it's the result of our own sin. Sometimes it's the consequences of our sin. Sometimes it's just the pressures or the burdens of life. Or what has happened to us in our lives. So we ask the question this morning, where do we go when we're in need of comfort? I believe as I was studying this chapter, this chapter is all about comfort. It's all about how God is going to comfort his people. After everything they've been to, been through rather, he now says, I've judged you enough. I've put you through enough now for your sin. And now I'm going to restore you. I'm going to comfort you. And so verse 1 says, once again, if you look with me there, it says, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So we see through the prophet Isaiah, God opens this second section of the book, second Isaiah, if you will, with these beautiful words, comfort, comfort my people. God declares that the time of punishment for his people has come to an end. And now it is time to comfort them. He speaks to people in exile. And he gives them hope that something better is coming. And so verses 1 and 2 act like a kind of introduction to this chapter. And so as we go through this chapter, we're going to see five ways in which God comforts his people. Five ways that he directs us to put our hope in him. So first of all, the first section, verses 3 to 5, to look forward for the coming of God. That gives us comfort. Secondly, verses 6 to 8, it gives us comfort to realize that all people are grass. You're going to say, well, how does that comfort? We're going to see. We're going to see. Don't worry. Thirdly, it gives us comfort to look for God's salvation. Verses 9 to 11. 
Fourthly, it gives us great comfort to understand that nothing compares to God. Verses 20, sorry, 12 to 26. And fifthly, finally, gives us strength, it gives us comfort to know that our strength is found in God alone. Verses 27 to 31. So let's take a look at our first point this morning. If we are in need of comfort this morning, let us look forward to the coming of God. Verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. And uneven ground shall become level in the rough places of plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall together see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the prophet says here that God is coming. And he's going to reveal his glory. A glory that everyone will see. And when we set our eyes upon God's glory and we're focusing on him. You know what we're doing at the same time? Well, we're taking our eyes off of our situations and our burdens. For the Jews who were in exile at this time, hearing these words, they were taking their eyes off of the fact that they were in exile. Off of the fact that they'd been transplanted to a foreign land. Now they were looking forward to the glorious coming of God. That one day soon he's going to rise up from his heavenly throne and bring the salvation that they are longing for. Verse 4 creates a vivid mental, mental picture, doesn't it? Imagine every valley and ravine and canyon filled up and every mountain and hill and cliff leveled to create a great highway, a great road to welcome the coming of God. It's like rolling out the, the greatest red carpet you've ever seen in order to receive the Savior of Israel. These are the same words that John the Baptist cries out in the wilderness to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. Because we who know the New Testament, we know that Jesus is the glory of God who came from the wilderness in order to bring God's salvation. Even more than that, Jesus was the Lord himself whose way was prepared. Just like them, we look forward to God's coming in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when he will bring his final and full salvation. So in the midst of our burdens and hardships, we look, as we look for the comfort from God, we first of all take our eyes off of our present situation and fix them on the coming salvation. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, something very similar. He says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter exhorts us to look forward to Christ's return, setting our hope upon the gracious salvation we will receive at that time. So that is our first step in being comforted, where we look forward to the glorious coming of God, when Jesus Christ will save his people and judge the living and the dead. Our second source of comfort comes from verses 6 to 8. We realize that all people are grass. Look with me, verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What is this talking about? Well, this is talking about the fleeting nature of life, along with its beauty and its power. Things may seem so bleak right now. The wrong people may be in power. Life may seem so hard. But you know what? It's all just like the grass of the field. Here today, gone tomorrow. And we may find ourselves asking, well, how is this supposed to be comforting? Telling me how short my life is doesn't comfort me. It only makes me more depressed. But what this does is it gives us the right perspective on our lives. Because it reminds us that the only one who truly matters is God. And the only thing that truly matters is my relationship to God. And once that becomes your primary focus, it's really very comforting. If you think that you're going to be around for a really long time, and that you have the luxury of putting things off until tomorrow, But if, on the other hand, you realize that you are a blade of grass and everything around us is made of grass, and that your time here on this earth is short, then what are you going to do? You will inevitably lift up your eyes to the only constant, the only unchanging one, who's God. And then whatever you might be facing in your life, you can say, well, that's just grass. My situation is grass. And I'm grass. And my flower may be fading. And my grass may be withering. But you know what? God is forever. And his word stands forever. And I can trust him even as I fade away. The psalmist David, he understood the same thing. He said in Psalm 39, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. David's contemplation of the shortness of his life leads him in the end to turn his mind toward God. And he acknowledges that in the final analysis, his hope must be placed in God himself. And that's what happens. That's what happens when we sit down and we actually think about it. When we meditate on just how short our lives are in the great scheme of things. We naturally turn to consider God who is the only one permanent and eternal. And we cling to him as our only hope. And that's where we find our comfort. For as everything is, is constantly changing around us, constantly withering, constantly fading, we can take comfort in the fact that we know the one who never changes, never withers, never fades. And as we saw in Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if we're looking to be comforted this morning, let us look forward to God's coming. And let us understand that while our lives may be fleeting like grass, we trust 
and eternal God. The third source of comfort in this life is to look for God's salvation. We see this in verses 9 to 11. If you look with me there. Verse 9, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And this section is actually a continuation of that first section we looked at where we saw that God was coming in glory on a highway prepared in the wilderness. But this section adds a new emphasis that when he comes, he will be bringing his salvation with him. Look with me at verse 10, where it says that God's arm rules for him. But what is God's arm anyway? Well, it might just be a metaphor for the power and might of God. But it could also be a way of talking about the king that God will install in Jerusalem to rule on his behalf. It is this king then, this arm of God who rules on God's behalf, is this king who brings a reward for God's faithful people. It is this king who will tend the flock of God like a shepherd in verse 11. The king will gather the little lambs in his arms and carry them carry them close to his chest while he leads the ewes with their young. This is a gentle king who rules in the power and might of God. This is a king who brings reward of salvation with him and who rules over his people with mercy and kindness and love. What a beautiful picture this is, this verse. This picture of this servant, uh, shepherd king caring for even the smallest and the most vulnerable. Hearing about God's coming salvation would have been a great comfort to the Jews suffering in Babylon, the exile, as well as the small number of Jews who've been left in the land of Israel. But they were looking forward to the coming of this shepherd king who rules on God's behalf. We have the advantage of knowing who the good shepherd king is. But we know what salvation he brought. For he has laid down his life for his sheep. And he gives eternal life, and they are kept safe in his hands. Remember John chapter 10? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not the shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Just as God, through the prophet Isaiah, gives comfort to his people, through the promise of salvation at the hand of this coming shepherd king, so we should be comforted when we reflect upon the gospel upon the salvation that God has brought through Jesus Christ. But just as they were waiting for a future deliverance, so for us, there is still a future aspect to our hope. For at his return, Jesus Christ will bring to full accomplishment the salvation that he has purchased on the cross. So when we are in need of comfort, 
We look forward to God's coming. We consider our own short lives and we focus on the salvation that God has promised. Our fourth source of comfort comes from our largest section, verses 12 to 26. Don't worry, we'll go through it quickly. Here we understand that nothing compares to God. Look with me at verse 12. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in the balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? All of these rhetorical questions that, that Isaiah asks these all lead us to the realization that nothing compares with God in terms of knowledge. Continuing verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for his fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Here we see that, that nothing compares with God in terms of power. So not in terms of knowledge, not in terms of power. Nations may seem large and powerful, but they are nothing in comparison with God. That includes Babylon. That includes the nations on earth today that may seem so rich and powerful. Verse 18. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts forth silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So we see nothing compares with God in knowledge. Nothing compares with God in power. Now we see no God can compare with the true and living God. All the gods of the nations are worthless idols. Images and statues can do nothing they have no power to save. Nothing compares with this God. And finally, verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of this earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So God is incomparable in terms of his knowledge, his power, no God is, is, can come close to him. And finally, here it says, no one and nothing can compare with God's divine power and sovereignty. God sits as king over the universe. The heavens are his to stretch out. Humans are like little grasshoppers to him. Princes, kings, emperors, presidents, and prime ministers are all under his sovereign hand to plant and to uproot. It says even the stars in the expanse of space are under his control. This is the great and awesome God that we worship. Nothing compares to him. 
No one compares to him. He is incomparable. Nothing even comes close. And what a comfort that is. To know that God is untouchable. To know that he's got everything in control. To know that his wisdom and knowledge is infinite. To know that he's so great, we can't even make statues of him. Because as great and magnificent as we could possibly make it, it would be so far less than his beauty and glory so that it would dishonor him. So not only is our lifespan like a blade of grass, but we are like grasshoppers. We're insects. And our relative insignificance in comparison with God is actually a great consolation. How is that? Because it means that we don't need to be in control of everything. We just need to know the one who is. We don't need to know everything. We just need to know him who does know everything. We don't need to strive against kings and princes. We just know. We just need to know the one who raises up princes and kings and brings them to nothing. We don't need to chart the stars. We just need to know the one who brings them forth and calls them by name. Our source of comfort lies not in our situation or circumstance, but rather in the God who holds both us and our circumstances in his sovereign hands. When we recognize that nothing can compare with our awesome God, his greatness then eclipses everything else. So do you need to be comforted this morning? Well, God brings these comforts in Isaiah chapter 40, that he is coming, that we are like grass, but he is forever, that he brings salvation with him, that nothing compares with him. And have you noticed what all these things have in common? They're all pointing us to God himself. For it is God himself who is our comfort and consolation. Everything else that we run to for comfort will eventually fail to satisfy, will eventually disappoint, will eventually fail, eventually pass away, eventually come to nothing. But only the God who made us and the God who gives us life and breath and pours out blessings upon us from heaven, only that God can truly and fully meet the need of comfort in our most hopeless and helpless moments. Our fifth and final point this morning covers the last verses of the chapter. It is the comfort of is the comfort that God is the one who provides our strength to endure. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God is the source of our strength. He is the one who provides the stamina to put one foot in front of the other. Verse 30 tells us that even the young who seem to have boundless energy, in their own strength, they will eventually run out of gas. In their own strength, 
They will eventually grow weary to the point of fainting and falling down and being exhausted. Why? Because they are depending upon themselves. They are running in their own power, using their own strength. But then verse 31 provides the contrast. Those who wait for the Lord. That means those who place their hope in Him. It is they who will find their strength renewed. Why? Because they are not depending upon their own strength, but rather on that of the living God. How will they mount up with wings like eagles? How will they run and not be weary? How shall they walk without fainting? Because God himself is their constant supply of strength. His tank never runs dry. For all those who hope and trust in him, there is a never-ending supply of strength for running the race. Comfort. Comfort my people, God cried out in the first verse of this chapter, changing the entire tone of the book of Isaiah in one single verse. Whether you're in Babylon, or the ruins of Jerusalem, or the GTA, our source of comfort in times of distress and hardship is the same. It is God himself, the God who is coming, the God who is permanent, even when we are but grass. The God bringing salvation with him. The God who transcends every possible comparison. The God who provides strength for those who call upon his name. Let us pray. Father, once again, we are so grateful for your word. For what it teaches us and how it consoles us. For Father, we are often a people in need of comfort. The situations in our lives, the things we are facing, the burdens that we hold. Father, we need your com comfort almost constantly. And so we are grateful for the, the 40th chapter of Isaiah that speaks to a burdened people and offers comfort. Comfort that finds its source and its object in you. For Father, truly you are our greatest, our greatest comfort. Everything else that we may look to will only be uh, temporary and it will never satisfy. Father, we do thank you for the reminder of the gospel. That as we consider the salvation that you have brought in Jesus Christ, that is our greatest comfort, knowing that our sins have been forgiven, that we have been made holy and, and cleansed through. That we are a people waiting for your coming salvation when the skies will be torn open and Jesus Christ will descend. So, Father, we pray that we would look for comfort from the right places. That we would seek that consolation that only you can give as we turn our hearts and minds towards you alone. Father, we give you thanks for these reminders from your word. We pray that as we leave this place, we would be comforted, Father. As we meditate upon these things and as we turn our hearts towards you. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen.